0: Some of you have had the unparalleled delight of reading the Left Behind series from the 1990s. Uh, It's a book series in which I believe Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye wrote about the apocalypse and uh, Christians getting vacuumed out of the world or raptured out of the world, uh, removed before the more treacherous elements of apocalypticism. Uh, But uh, that whole sense of being left behind, of being uh, abandoned, of uh, being let go of is is a very frightening thing. And I wonder if you've ever experienced it uh, (laughs) non-apocalyptically. Uh, that is being left by your lonesome, I mean, some of you by now are empty nesters, and I've not had uh, the the pleasure or the terror of that experience, Um, in which, you know, your children have have gone, and they uh, work for Neiman Marcus or something, or Starbucks probably, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that, a lot of dignity in it, and uh, I get discounts uh, when you're serving (laughs) me, so it all works out for me, but your kids are there, and they don't call very much, and uh, and you thought that they would, Uh, they're not coming for Christmas this year, but they haven't told you yet, and... uh, Uh, And so you're feeling very much the strain of being an empty nester, or uh, maybe it's you've retired, you've retired and you thought it would be great, uh, but you also thought that your company would rely upon you more and you'd receive more phone calls and you would be uh, hounded for advice, but the truth is they're not calling and things just seem to roll on without you and there's there's some sorrow in that or maybe you have a loved one right now who's dealing with a sort of late stage dementia or alzheimers and uh, and yes their body is in the chair but their their mind is not with you and they don't remember your name and they can't trace back the memories and you're feeling disconnected from them and you feel like in a sense you've been left behind and uh, or maybe you've had a partner that's left you or uh, some uh, significant friendship that has uh, vanished uh, from your life, and you are left impoverished and left behind because the very things that uh, created for you an attachment to the stream of life are now gone, and you can't get them back. Well, we've all experienced that to one degree or another, and I, uh, I think it's just part of the very sorrowful nature of existence as it currently is constituted. But in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus is prepping via a very serious uh, prayer. He is prepping his followers for a time in which they will, in a sense, be left behind. Uh, that, That he is about to depart from the world and they will experience his physical absence. He's going to leave the planet and they have to learn to live without his voice. And to live without his conversation and to live without his cures and to live without his protection and his company and all that that entails. And, uh, and it begs the question for us, of course, too, as we have this messianic figure at the very focus of our religion, and, and he is the one from whom we derive life and inspiration, but he's not here in the same way that your uh, spouse is here. He's not here the same way your best friend is here. And so it's uh, somewhat difficult. It's somewhat difficult. How do we live in a world without the, um, the uh, centrifugal uh, person of Christ? How do we live in this world as it is without him? Well, in John 17, Jesus prays about this. He prays about our place in the world. In fact, he mentions the world 11 times, 11 times in eight verses. This passage is all about how do we function in the world after he's gone? And so I'm going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about uh, our relationship to the world in light of the physicalized absence of Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm going to say five things, but don't worry. I'm going to be brief. I'm going to be brief. I'm not feeling especially Presbyterian today, so I'm not going to stretch this out. That was a joke. Um, I'm love. i telling you, if I wasn't an Anglican, I'd be a Presbyterian, but there it is. Um, uh, So let me mention these five things, five things. First, Jesus expected to leave the world. Jesus expected to leave the world, and this is why he says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He's speaking to God. He's getting vertical. He's saying, I am no longer in the world, meaning even then, right before his crucifixion, he knows in his heart he's already departing. He's already departing. There's going to be an exodus of the Son of God from this uh, tortured earthen realm, And uh, I want to say that I I wasn't on the planning committee, and I don't know if I agree with the strategy, right, that he's going to back away, that he's leaving, that he's even praying to God about his future departure. Uh, And I have always had questions about this. I mean, after the uh, public success and uniqueness of his own resurrection, why doesn't he stay around? I mean, for me, that would make more sense. Like, stay around and become even more famous and more credible, not in the eyes of 500, but in the eyes of millions. You know, set up shop. Maybe he'd move to Nashville, right, and make a little ashram or a pyramid or some sort of attractive structure. And millions of people from around the world would come and see him, right? This ageless messiah who could dole out wisdom and healing and could really help you with all of your psychodrama. I mean, he could really help you. But... He didn't stick around. He never moved to Nashville. He doesn't live in London. Uh, he isn't signing autographs. He's not uh, giving TED Talks. Instead, he's gone. And uh, and what is that? I mean, what is this? is this some sort of cosmic act of abandonment? Is this bad parenting or something like that? You know, there are people that have concluded that way. Matthew uh, um, Arnold, who was inexplicably an Anglican uh, curate as well as a, a poet, but he was sort of an agnostic, right? But he was an Anglican priest. I don't know what to do with that, but there it is. And he, uh, and he wrote a poem called Dover Beach, Maybe some of you know it, familiar with it. And he uh, wrote in that poem, The Sea of Faith. So he's talking about Christian experience. The sea of faith was once to at the full and round earth's shore. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. Right? It used to be important to us, but now it's in retreat. It's sort of a mournful retreat. Is that what's happening here? The removal of God from the human experience, the removal of the great man, the centrifugal character from our story. Is that what happened? Is that what this is about? Jesus' envelopment into the heavens? Well, No. No, 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 it isn't, because he, he says during the Last Supper discourse with his disciples, I'm not going to leave you like orphans in a ditch. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. Instead, I'm going, and it's better for you if I go, because when I go, I'm going to send you a great advocate. I'm going to send you someone just like me to be with you with great immediacy. And we know that person as the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is saying is, as I leave the world, I'm going to send you uh, someone who can be a universalizing presence because the, the danger of having a Christ figure is that he's too particularized. He lives in one place, in one zip code, speaks one language, maybe two, right? But he can only address you in your context if you're in uh, earshot of him. But what he's saying uh, when, he, when he addresses his disciples and confesses that he's about to send another is that the particulars of Christ will now be universalized by the Spirit, right? And so uh, Jesus expects to leave the world, and so we have to function within a world in which you cannot physically at this point embrace your own Messiah. That day is coming, but it's not here yet. So Jesus expects to leave the world. That's point one. Point two, Jesus expects an antagonistic world, an antagonistic world. And then this is verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Now, it's important for us to remember, what is the world? What well, depends upon the context? Sometimes the Bible, when it speaks about the world, just means the good created order from Genesis, right? God's good structure of being in which we uh, live and move. Um, Sometimes when scripture talks about the world, and it seems that this is one of those times, it it is expressing that we live within a uh, lifelong experience of cosmic bipolarity, cosmic bipolarity in which the world is both sublime and treacherous. It's both, sublime and treacherous. Right? Remember what Hannibal Lecter said. Of course, I'm quoting Hannibal Lecter from the pulpit. That swans and typhoid come from the same place, right? That was his line. That creation is a mixed bag, uh, and that's the world that, uh, that uh, John is uh, referencing here from Jesus's prayer, that we live in a world of incongruence, and don't you see incongruence right down to your own very heart? Don't you experience the same thing within you, not just out there, but in here? Aren't you incongruent? Because you are remarkably humble and terribly proud at the same time. Not you, but me, right? You're humble and you're proud, but you're incongruent. Well, that's the world. That's the world. And Jesus warns us about the world, the antipathy of the world, the hatred of the world that is directed toward you, that there are aspects of creation which will be weaponized against your very person because of your allegiance to a crucified and risen Messiah. And who wants that? Because don't you, like me, often lust for approval, yearn for maybe not the accolades of the world, but at least to be left alone by the world? Like you do your thing, I'll do mine, Benedict option, you know, a little distance from you, healthy boundaries and all that, and you'll just leave me alone. Um, and, uh, and I, under, I understand that drive in me to just be left alone and not to have antagonism with the world. And uh, very often Christians have very confused ideas about this because they think the antipathy of the world is all because of the fault of Christians, right? It, you've heard this, of course. It's on, like, every other Facebook meme, uh, right? The reason the world doesn't like Christians is because we're not nice enough. We're not inclusive enough. We're not kind enough. We're not flexible enough. We're not consistent enough. We don't have enough integrity. Now, here's what's hard. That, of course, can be true. Of course that can be true. We see that all the time. That's not remarkable. That's banal. It's evident. Uh, but but, let me say this. That wasn't the experience for Jesus. Arguably, there was no, uh, no one more Christian than Christ, and he was doomed to the cross by the world, and not just by the religious authorities, but by the secular state, too. Right? that Jesus was put to death because he was too Christian. Uh, in other words, the world allied itself against our Messiah, and the world hated the Messiah and his word, and will probably hate aspects of his followers as well, regardless of how nice we seem to be. Uh, because we're, we're coming from divergent places, and so eventually those divergent places will experience strength. So Jesus expects an antagonistic world. That's point two. Now point three. Jesus expects our attachment to the world, our healthful attachment to the world. This is what he says in verse uh, 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Now it's fascinating, right? At the ascension of Christ, when he's enveloped into the heavens, Jesus leaves, but we stay we stay. We continue to uh, date and to marry and to buy uh, homes and to get jobs and to raise kids and to make appointments with shrinks. It's just what we do. Uh, and I don't like that. I wish we could retreat with him right now. In fact, that was sort of the understanding of the first century that when the Messiah came, it would be a, a, like white lightning and everything would change in an instant. And when the Messiah had his sort of new vivification in God, you would share it immediately and everything would be cured. And this is weird because now Jesus is enveloped into glory, but you're stuck here, at least for the time being. And that was unexpected. Uh, and uh, and and I wish that I could retreat. Don't you? I want to retreat. I don't want to stick around, really, at least not when, when my weeks are particularly challenging or straining and filled with decisions that I don't want to make. I want to join the Witness Protection Program. It's uh, never been an option for me that I really want to join it. I want a new name, something like Xander, something fancy. <laughs> I want to wear a fake mustache. I want to have enough money uh, provided by the government to shop at Whole Foods. Uh, I want to take up oil painting, very much. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, uh, Jesus has not promised a Witness Protection Program. Instead, he says, I need you to be in the world for now. I need you to be in the world, but not of the world. You know the cliche, but it's a true cliche. In the world, but not of the world, not governed and ruled by the pimp of lies, whom we know is Satan, right? but delivered from the the, the, uh, courses of the evil one. Uh, delivered from the uh, uh, profound effects of of sin and the tyranny of dysfunction within our own earthen realm. And so Jesus taught involvement rather than retreat, involvement rather than retreat. This is why he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Meaning, you need to be in those places in order to have that effect, and yet you need to be distinctive within those places to have that effect. So in the world, but not of the world. You need to attach to this place, but attach to it for its ultimate well-being. And at the same time, this is point four, Jesus expects our detachment from the world. So we're to be attached in a certain sense, and detached in another sense. This is why he says in verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now, he's likening his experience to ours. He was a misfit. We are misfits. We don't fit. We don't fit. No matter how much we want to or resent that we don't, we just don't fit. If we belong to a Messiah uh, who was a misfit, we certainly will be misfits as well. And he had, of course, a misfit origin story that he was the great man from heaven. And he was a misfit in terms of behavior because he marched to the beat of his own drummer that wasn't, uh, that wasn't uh, rhythmically designed by a fallen condition. Uh, and, and so even in our baptismal vows, now we in this place baptize uh, people that are very young, people that are older. But in our baptismal vows, that initiating right into Christianity, we renounce the world. Maybe you remember that. We renounce Satan, first of all. Secondly, we renounce the world. And this is the baptismal vow about that very matter. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world, which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? That's saying, do you detach? Do you have the courage at this moment to detach to the world, detach from the world rather? Now, it's a very hard thing to detach, a very hard thing. I was speaking with a, a young man the other day who has a horrifically abusive father who has never really faced into his own violent tendencies. And so this young man says, look, I've never heard anybody like that. I've never punched anybody, shoved anybody, grabbed anybody, anybody by the throat like I've been grabbed by the throat. I've never done it. And yet at the same time, I sense within myself a great deal of anger. And that anger is all too familiar. And he said, I don't want any part of it, but I noticed that it's within me. And what he was saying is it's hard to detach from the family pattern to some degree. It's hard to detach, at least emotionally, from what's been given to me. And good for him for acknowledging it. Um, but this is, of course, very true. Hard to detach from the world. Now, I was an Episcopal clergyman for some time before I was defrocked, but that's another story uh, uh, for, meant for a martini. But um, but uh, now I was an Episcopal clergyman, but we left the Episcopal Church for a variety of reasons. But one of them was that when I was back in the old church, we saw ourselves as chaplains to the culture. Chaplains to the culture. So wherever the culture went, either politically right or left, we would just go with them and make the sign of the cross over whatever the culture wanted. Uh, well, that that is okay insofar as the culture is doing things that are sort of modestly Christian, or at least Christian in their orientation. But when it gets weird, and sometimes it does, then all of a sudden you have sort of a bifurcation between theology and your, your, your core commitments, and on the other hand, the, the sort of zeitgeist of the times. And uh, I remember the ultimate goal for an Episcopal priest was simply to be nice, not necessarily to preach the gospel, but to be, but to be nice. And so one Episcopal bishop said, "We are basically worldliness in robes," which I thought was funny and and, and damning at the same time. Uh, and so I understand. By the way, I, I understand. Like I'm, I, my my givens is just to go along, to get along, you know, to be nice and to and, and to not uh, rage against the uh, the dying of the light, you know. But at the same time, at the same time. Uh, we, we are called to have a certain detachment uh, from the the world because uh, the world uh, can be a very poisonous uh, r- reality that can really harm us in irreparable ways and uh, and how do we detach how do we detach from the world Well uh, this passage talks about the word the word that is truth, the word that sanctifies is the very mechanism of detachment because Uh, The Word, uh, which is, of course, what Jesus embodies and then what was written about uh, regarding him. Uh, The Word gives us a wisdom that supersedes our own and that comes from the outside. You know, we live in a a time uh, that is both intelligent and extremely stupid. And, And one of the more stupid elements is simply this. Make a religion out of your intuition. Take what you intuit, emotionally or psychologically, and call that God. The great thing about scripture is it says, no, 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 that's pathological, because there's good things in you, and there's the Rocky Horror Picture Show within you, and it's sort of a blend of both half the time. And so you need an externalized wisdom to grant you a sight that you would not have via intuition. You need something that supersedes your intuition, that is older than your intuition, that's more inspired than your intuition. And within our understanding, within our Christian understanding, revelation trumps intuition revelation trumps intuition. Uh, And so we need to attach, attach to the great revealed source of God that we find in scripture that hinges upon the gospel word of Christ crucified for sinners. And this is why Thomas Cranmer, the genius behind the Anglican liturgy said regarding scripture that we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Bible. Now that's weird, right? What he was saying, eat the Bible, but that's what he meant metaphorically. Take all of these externalized truths and, and bond with them in the deepest possible way so that that story becomes your story, so that you and your intuition are subsumed into revelation and therefore are able to adjust better to God's truth in life. And that's what he's saying. Bond with the word in the deepest possible sense. In other words, detach from the umbilical cord that connects you to the poisoned placenta of the world and instead attach, attach to that life-giving source uh, from God. From the womb of God, which is found in the word. And so Jesus expects our detachment from the world. And now this is point five. Are you not impressed with my speed? Point five. Uh, God expects us to be messengers to the world. Messengers to the world. Uh, And this is what he says in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So he's talking to God again. You've sent me here, and now you're sending them. The mission is not over. The mission carries on even when I'm gone. Now, this is sort of a great commission-like prayer in which he is saying that we move toward the world, we move toward the world with a message. Now, it's not a message about us. It's not a message about our improvement. It's not a message that's directly political or psychological or economic or social, though there are ramifications in those areas. But it's not principally that. It's a loftier message. It's a message about God. And not just about God, it's a message about the gospel of God, and which is basically summarized in these words, that God is a supra-personality with whom you eventually have to deal. You can't escape it all your life. You're going to eventually have to square with ultimacy. And the only way to do that with any credibility is to have a gifted credibility that comes from the absolving lover of sinners you need somebody who is an advocate for you who is on your side who sees you in all of your beauty and your decrepitude and says i want that person i love that person and come hell or high water i'm with them up to the hilt to the very end and that's the christian gospel complete pardon and amnesty because of the death and resurrection of jesus that's the gospel. And, uh, and that's the thing in which you stand. It's the only thing that causes us not only to survive in the face of ultimacy, but to thrive in the face of ultimacy. Uh, and, uh, and so Jesus wants us to walk toward the world with that foreign message, the foreign message that is grace. Now, the world doesn't believe in grace at all. By the way, most Christians don't seem to either. Uh, they, they greatly struggle, and they're terribly worried about how it'll be abused, so they never preach it at all. So worried about cheap grace, they forget that grace is free, and free is better than cheap. Nevertheless, Um, The world believes in many, many things. The world believes in many things, right? They believe in kindness without truth, or truth without mercy, or blurred lines, or cries of justice that are based and defined by no transcendent source of justice. So it's just justice as you've imagined it to be. But they don't believe in grace. Because grace says, felonies really are felonies. Yeah, sin exists. Felonies are felonies. And you're forgiven for all of them. The world doesn't have a place for that. Because on the one hand, it acknowledges too much sin, and on the other hand, it acknowledges too much love. And it can't handle either one of those things. But nevertheless, that's our message. Grace via the crucified and risen Jesus, who dares to say to the most notorious among us, amnesty is granted. Spend the rest of your life coping with that. Amnesty is granted. And so, uh, friends, we don't love the ways of the world, but we really are to love the world. And the world will never be saved nor converted by ridicule. Sometimes we think if we're snarky enough or passive-aggressive enough uh, via our social media presence that all will come running and say, where is water that I may be baptized? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. In fact, there's something sort of ill-suited for Christians who claim that they gained their mission from God to distance themselves from the emotive quality of that God who loves the world into health. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so, if we hate that which God loves, uh, we are not—we are not uh, appropriately suited to be those missionaries. Uh, we have a message of grace because grace is the only thing that's given us any legitimacy and anything to say. So. That's the uh, five things that Jesus has to say about our relationship to the world. Jesus is expected to leave the world. Jesus expects an antagonistic world. Jesus expects an attachment to the world. Jesus expects a detachment from the world. And Jesus expects us to be messengers to that same world. So this is the ascension, the, the Sunday after the ascension where the great man is not leaving us behind, not disregarding us like orphans in an alley. No, he has gone to prepare a place for us. He has gone to send the Spirit, and he has vowed to return to heal a world gone mad. No one is left behind. You never will be. You'll never be left behind. After all, next Sunday is Pentecost, in which we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. And by that Holy Spirit, Jesus is now more attached to you than ever. In fact, attached to billions of people. The world is lighting up with the everlasting torches of the Son of God. His risen life, his undying influence, his energizing love, and his open eyes, eyed expectation. That's the thing that carries on. His mission carries on. And because of our ascended Jesus, not only is there hope for us, there is hope for the whole world. Amen.